mentioned that uh, actually we started at the very beginning of the year. I know there's some people who've joined with us. In fact, uh, I know that there's some folks that are starting what I think is a form of a digital neighborhood in Kitsap County, Washington State. All right, so shout out to all of you who are part of the Mill City Church Digital Neighborhood out in Washington State. So the people out in the wild, wild west in Plymouth are like, you have no idea what west really means for this group. This is the digital neighborhood that's real west, all right? Uh, we've been connecting in digital neighborhoods of folks after the service, and if you haven't checked it out yet, or maybe you did once or twice, you're welcome to join back in and to reconnect with those people. And a huge shout out to the folks who've maybe been joining for the beginning here. This has just been great to have you. But this conversation we've been having is uh, through the whole New Testament. We started at the beginning of 2020, and we were saying, what would it look like for us to have our life and our story of 2020 be defined by the story of Jesus? And so we've gone through all the different books in the, in the order that they are in the Bible, not necessarily chronologically. And today, here we are in 1 Thessalonians, which actually is probably one of the first letters that Paul wrote. But here we are talking about it kind of in the middle here. And the question we've been asking in this season is, how do we live? How do we live? And we figured that a lot of these churches, these young churches, just like the church in Thessalonica, was asking these questions. How do we live in light of who Jesus is and who Jesus is inviting us to be? And so I asked this question, uh, what are some celebrations that we've been having in this strange time? Because I think there's a question like, how do we do that? How do we celebrate? How do we continue to, to honor the people who have graduated and have gone through these awesome times? Uh, but it's in such a strange time, right? And so I I've did the drive-through grad parties. I was at a digital shower over Zoom for somebody, a bridal shower. Um, I did one outdoor wedding so far, and we made it just before it started pouring, which was really intense. Uh, we did a progressive patio dinner with our neighbors where we had uh, dinner at one patio and went to dessert at the other. We're all getting creative to do the best that we can. And I want to give you a recommendation during this time when we're trying to figure out how do we do this together. And that is this woman, Priya Parker, some of you know her. She wrote this book called The Art of Gathering, and she is, it's called How Do We Meet and Why It Matters. And she wrote this book about gathering, and it came out right before the pandemic. So maybe we should just support her anyway, because that's a rough topic. But she then has made now a podcast called Together Apart, Together Apart. And I highly recommend it, because she's talking about how we might do this together. How do we celebrate in the midst of this time? How do we honor people and the important things that are continuing to go on in people's lives? So I highly recommend that. Just look up Priya Parker, and you can find all that information. But she calls these celebrations uh, a light in the middle of the tunnel, a light in the middle of the tunnel. We all want to know where is the light at the end of the tunnel, but she talks about celebrating people and honoring people in the midst of this time, light in the middle of the tunnel. And I just love that. I thought that was such a helpful way to think about the strange reality of this time. I recognized yesterday that it's exactly 150 days since COVID-19 was declared a pandemic here in the United States and globally. Can you imagine that? 150 days exactly. And I join in with many of you in just admitting how difficult this time has been in so many ways. Um, I, I have to say that this has been one of the most challenging seasons in my life in, in a lot of things. And I've been through a lot of stuff. You've been through a lot of other stuff too, but it's so strange, isn't it? But I have to also say that there's been this kind of unusual depth of meaning surrounding a lot of the things I've experienced. I, it's almost hard for me to find words for it. It's like these light in the middle of the tunnel moments. There's more to them than meets the eye. And I think it's about this paradox that I keep experiencing, this paradox uh, uh, reality. So for instance, there's this celebration of someone's uh, bridal celebration. We're so excited that they're getting married, yet at the same time, there's this loss that we can't physically be with them to celebrate. Or we're so excited that someone hit this milestone of graduation, yet it's so strange that we're driving cars around a cul-de-sac. That's not really quite how it's supposed to be, right? This paradox. And last week, I was 
talking and, and suggesting this reality that, that the deepest experiences in life are found in the both and seasons. Not necessarily in the either or seasons, the seasons that are really great or really hard, but the either or both, the either or, not the either or, but the both and, all right? So things that can almost seem like a paradox, like sorrow and joy, or uh, tragedy and beauty, or strength, but also a sense of serenity. What is it about these things that seem like a paradox on the outside? I think that God is a both and God. God is a God who is with us in the depth of our sorrow, but also with us in the height of our joy and experiences in our life. And we see this paradox in this letter to, to, to the Thessalonica church. In, in 1 Thessalonians, you see this paradox thread just through the whole letter of joy and of suffering. These two things. So I, I think of it like this. You've got this, this ribbon of joy, and then you've got this ribbon of suffering. And it says, though they're, they're thread through these five chapters of this letter that he's writing to this church. You find it if you look for it. I encourage you, if you go back, look for it and see. You'll see that even in the short letter, joy is mentioned five times in the short letter and suffering or oppression in some way is mentioned five times. These two themes are woven through the letter, joy and suffering. The people of Thessalonica, man, that's going to be a hard one. <laughs> the people in this church <laughs> are asking the question, how do we live with joy in the midst, in the midst of a time of suffering? And I resonate with that question. Maybe many of you do too. And these two themes, maybe they're more connected than we think. Maybe it's more like they're woven together, not just thread through the letter, but they're woven together in this way where they can't actually be separated in the midst of the realities that people are facing. Perhaps these two themes are more connected than we think. How might we live differently if joy and suffering were woven together in our lives and we embraced that reality? How might we live differently if we saw that joy and suffering we're woven together in our lives. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about the, the background of this letter to the Thessalonians and just kind of get the setting, okay? So imagine with me. I always want us to just imagine being there, being a part of this community. What would it have been like for us to be a part of this community? Paul and his friends had been a part of the beginning of the church starting there. They, they, this, modern day, this is a place that's now modern-day Greece, and they were there for the beginning of the church, and they started to face this persecution for being people who followed Jesus. These new Jesus followers were getting, people were getting suspicion, suspicious of them because they were being accused of defying Caesar or the Roman emperor. Why? Because they were saying that there was another king, King Jesus, and that was a threat. And so to add in, this is all adding insult to injury. So being persecuted to follow Jesus was adding on to the reality that these folks were not folks who had privilege and power in society. These were people who were marginalized and oppressed. The Jewish people in most places at this time were not in privilege and power at all, and anyone associated with them, the Greeks who were beginning to follow Jesus, they were considered people who didn't have power. They were considered marginalized. And as we read these letters, it makes sense to us that when we read them, right, when we've been reading them together, I've encouraged you to read them. As you read them, what happens, right? You kind of picture yourself in the story, and you say, well, how does this apply to me? That's great. I'm so glad that you're doing that. But you have to remember that this is a very different context that we are in for most of us. For most of us who have not experienced being marginalized and oppressed, we have to remember we are a very different audience than Paul was originally talking to at that time. So the people who were listening to this for the first time. They were people who were well equated. Uh, they were just very, very experienced when it comes to suffering. And they were now facing even more suffering because they were following Jesus. 
So to point to the point that actually Paul and his companions, they had to leave. They had to flee. And so what's happening here in the story is that Paul has sent Timothy, his mentee, back to spend some time with the church, the Thessalonian church. And Timothy has come back and given a report. And so Paul is writing this first letter to them to, to say, I heard from Timothy. I heard the report of how you're doing and so you're facing some hardship. And he wants to encourage them and reassure them and send them some, some encouragement along the way. So that's what this letter is in 1 Thessalonians. So some of us, we haven't lived with prolonged suffering in our life. But some of you are saying, well, I absolutely have. And I bet you have. And I've had enough conversations with many of you right now to know that this season that we're facing right now feels like some of the most prolonged suffering that many of us have had in a while, like I said. So whether you feel like you're in a place of suffering right now or not, I want you to know you are close by relationally with someone who does feel that. And that is their experience. And so the way that joy and suffering are woven together could be so critical for you right now. So we're going to jump right into the very beginning of the book. Uh, right in the very the first chapter. So if you have a Bible or someplace where you can grab it on an app, we're in 1 Thessalonians 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. We'll have it up here on the screen for you. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God, our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how he lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message, the gospel about Jesus, in the midst of severe suffering, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So like we talked about when we talked about the book of Colossians last week, Paul starts out by encouraging them, doesn't he? And oftentimes we want to jump to what do we need to do better and how do we, what do we need to do? Look, sometimes we just need to accept and receive some of this encouragement. He's saying to them, you are pursuing love and you are trying to live in faith. You have this endurance that you're trying to continue to step into and it's all because you are inspired by the hope in Jesus. So let's zoom in on, zoom, uh, on verse 6, okay? So right in here it says, You became imitators of us in the Lord, for you welcomed the message, the gospel about Jesus, in the midst of severe suffering, with the joy from the Holy Spirit. There it is, the suffering and the joy, right? And you became a model to all these other people who were trying to follow Jesus in Macedonia and Achaia, these other cities nearby. So there it is right at the beginning. The thread of suffering and joy. In the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And it's critical for us to take note. Where does the joy come from? The joy comes from the Holy Spirit. And that is why it's an example to other people. It's not look at us doing a good job of figuring out how to be happy. All right, I started to call this the happiness movement. Have you noticed there's this kind of movement, the happiness movement, and this is not to be mistaken with that. There's been so many books and blogs and podcasts and whatever written about how to be happier in life, and I just really believe that joy is something that's so much deeper than that. It's so much deeper than that. It's something that the Holy Spirit can give us that can spring up in our life even in the midst of, of deep lament and sorrow. When joy breaks into our everyday life, even when we're in the midst of suffering, I have started to call these doxology moments. 
All right, doxology moments where it's almost this overwhelming sense. It sometimes maybe even comes out of nowhere. Maybe it's because I see something beautiful or maybe it's because God reminds me of something, but God puts on my heart this almost overwhelming sense to praise God from whom all blessings flow. I call that a doxology moment I've experienced. Maybe you've been experiencing those or you long to experience those doxology moments. And I think God wants to give those to us. So joy is then sown through this letter until the very last chapter. In fact, I'm just going to read the, this really part from the last chapter. So I started at the beginning. I'm going to give you the bookend of joy here at the end of the letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 22. Let's put it up on the screen. Rejoice always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances. Right there, right? Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. How can we learn to live with joy in the midst of suffering? Just like this church was trying to figure out how to do. How can we do that? How do we live? So as I dug into this, this letter, I, I, I have three things that came to the surface for me that I want to share with you about how we can have joy in the midst of suffering. All right. So the first thing is, we can live in joy if we learn the language of lament. We can live in joy if we learn the language of lament. So upon first glance, uh, when you see this phrase, rejoice always, it can kind of seem like a low-key form of like, just try to find something happy, silver lining, happiness movement, right? It can look like low-key, like rose-colored glasses, this is all we're doing, but this is a, there would be a misunderstanding of the perspective of these folks because these are people who have faced prolonged and sustained, sustained suffering over time. They're not going to be people who are going to tolerate anything about rose-colored glasses, trust me. And so for those who are facing oppression and evil and brokenness at a visceral level all around them, joy is a form of resistance. Joy is a form of resistance towards the brokenness in the world that is not caused by God, but by the enemy of God. Maybe you've heard the phrase from Scripture, the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's in a couple places. And if you're weary and you're under the burden of oppression in your life, you are desperately in need of strength, right? When you face such deep suffering, you're also in need of lament or a way to express that suffering. A definition we've often used is crying out to God in sadness, pain, maybe even anger. To the people listening to Paul receiving this letter back 2,000 years ago, the practice of lament would not be as foreign to them as it might be to us. They would sing lament psalms together regularly. It was a very important part of their life to be able to sustain the realities that they faced. Uh, I love this book by Dr. Su Chen Ra, who uh, is a, a scholar that I really look up to. Got, I've gotten to meet him a couple times. And this book's called Prophetic Lament, A Call for Justice in Troubled Times. And it's, it's about the book of Lamentations. But in this book, he defines lament as the language of suffering. I love that he says that. Lament is the language of suffering. And then he talks about how praise and lament go together. And he used the same idea that I was talking about earlier, this idea of, of them being woven together. This is what he says about praise and lament. The intersection of the two threads provides the opportunity to engage the fullness of the gospel message. Lament and praise must go hand in hand. Lament and praise must go hand in hand. Over this last week, I had a conversation with one of my friends. Her name is Leah, and she is a sociology scholar who lives here in Minneapolis. And I asked her about this idea of joy as a form of resistance. And she shared with me that it's been such an important part of how she sees and understands her history as a black woman. 
When she looks back over the history of what it means to be black in America, she says, the joy as resistance is an important part of my history. She said, for instance, when we talk about the freedom riders and those who were jailed during the civil rights movement and how they would sing spirituals and praise songs to God and hymns, just like Paul and his companions did, knowing that that could get them into more trouble. And, and they would do it anyway because they knew that the joy of the Lord was their strength. That was the only way they were going to get through. It was a form of resistance. Leah then talked about the importance of what's often referred to as black joy, this commitment to seek out joy even in times of pain. And you can see that reflected in many places in black art and black culture. And, you know, I confessed to Leah, I was talking to her, I said, personally, as someone who's not experienced prolonged suffering in my life, I think the way that joy and suffering, this idea of them being woven together, it's not as clear to me as I think it is to people who've experienced lifelong oppression or suffering. And here's how she put it. She agreed with me. She said, I bet that is harder for you than it would be for me. And she said, joy and lament have a paradoxically connected relationship that people on the margins understand in ways that people in dominant culture oftentimes are just not acquainted with. Joy and lament have a paradoxically connected relationship that people on the margins understand in ways that people in dominant culture oftentimes are just not acquainted with. Lament as a way to express suffering is connected to deep joy. And people like me can learn so much from those who have endured suffering in ways that, I'll be honest, I have the privilege to avoid. I sometimes choose to escape from, even if it's only temporarily. If lament is the language of suffering, then perhaps the people who uh, are on the margins are the people who are our language learner that needs to give us the lessons, right? If we are people who are trying to figure out the language of suffering as lament, perhaps people on the margins are the ones, the only ones who can actually teach us the language. And we know from the study of psychology that the depth of sorrow that we experience in life can deepen the depth of joy that we can experience, that our emotional capacity is not static. It feels like it sometimes, right? Like I can't handle any more emotions, but it's not like that. We actually do have an ability to expand in our, our ability to handle deep emotions, whether they are, are depths of sorrow, depths of pain, or depths of joy. It's that both and paradox. It's how God created us. So we can live in joy if we learn the language of lament. Second, a second way we can live in joy is if we love each other deeply. If we love each other deeply, it might seem simple, but if you read through the rest of 1 Thessalonians, the other references to joy are all references to community, to the relationship that these people have brought together as a family by the Holy Spirit and all together because of their love for Jesus. So let me read uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 18 through 20 to give you an example of what I mean, that joy is, is being referred to as a deep love of other people. Paul says, we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. You are our joy. We feel that way about each other. Joy comes from the Holy Spirit, but also from deep and loving community. Listen to how Paul's encouragement is to them in the next chapter, 1 Thessalonians 3. Verse 11, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and our Father when the Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. The Holy Spirit gives us joy. 
One of the ways is by giving us a deep and overflowing love for each other. Paul so deeply longed to be with these people he loved, but he was separated from them. And I know that's how so many of us feel, so pained right now. The separation can be so hard. This is what Paul was experiencing in a different way. And so I want to share what's been on my heart. As I've been thinking about our relationships with each other, I have to say I've been praying for our community, and some of you are going to be upset that I bring up the, this word that starts with W, but I've been thinking about winter, okay? Don't be, I know, I know, that everyone in here just freaked out. Stay with me. But I'm thinking about winter and I'm praying about it and I'm, and I'm asking God, how are we going to fight the isolation that could so easily happen when these months get colder and the time that we can spend outside is going to start to fade away, okay? And I have two initial thoughts. You're going to hear me talk about this because I think this is so crucial. But the first thought I want to share with you is that when our, right now, in these next few weeks even, before our schedules are super packed, before we're all people who are just like completely uh, into things in the fall, and while the weather's still nice, what would it look like to what I'm calling relational canning, okay? So if you want to keep your vegetables all year, what do you do? You have to can them here in Minnesota. So what would relational canning look like for you? What would it look like to say, we're going to store up some relational time, we're going to Go a little bit deeper when we're having outside barbecues because it's harder to do that online and we're going to make it happen. What conversations do I want to have with people about how we're going to make sure we stay connected with whatever's going on as we go into this, into this winter, into this fall? We don't know what's going to happen, but I do think that we will not regret storing up some relational canning in our life. Okay, so I know it's dorky, but I really want you to remember it. The second thought I have is that I think we might need to start viewing uh, staying connected more like a spiritual discipline than something that you just feel like you want to do, okay? So the introverted people are like, duh, it's a discipline to hang out with people when you don't feel like it. Well, we're coming with you, okay? Like, welcome. For whether it's for Mill City and connecting maybe with digital neighborhoods or a group that you're a part of or other people in your life, maybe being the person to call somebody uh, to connect organically, I don't know what it looks like, but what does this spiritual discipline look like for you? For God to give us endurance in our relationships. Because I get it. You might not want to get on that Zoom call in your PJs after church. You know, I get that. I totally understand. But trust me, the isolation will be worse. And we need to be there for the people who are at risk of the most severe isolation. Because there are folks that that is going to be the hardest for. So here's my uh, own version of that prayer that Paul prayed in, in 1 Thessalonians 3. Uh, this is the Pastor Steph translation, okay? The PST. It's not on the screen. I'm just going to read it for you because... It's already bad enough that I'm changing it. We're not going to type it out. Okay, so this is the prayer that I have for you. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to stay connected physically and also digitally. Sounds like it, right? May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and everyone else, a love that is more powerful than Zoom fatigue, right? And may God strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and not send out inappropriate memes that hurt someone's feelings unnecessarily. <laughs> And may you be holy in the presence of God and not write anything on anyone's Facebook wall that you would not say to them in person with love. Okay, that's my prayer for all of us. <laughs> all right, finally, third thing. We can live in joy if we hold on to hope. We can live in joy if we hold on to hope. The last part of this letter, Paul seems to focus quite a bit on the second coming of Jesus, of Jesus coming back to this earth. And it was important for those people that he's encouraging to remember that Jesus was the true king, that joy can come now as God is engaging and breaking into our life, but also that we have a future hope that brokenness is not the end of the story, that King Jesus is the true king. And so chapter four includes this now pretty well-known image of Jesus returning in the sky. Let me read just a little part of it, First Thessalonians 4. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven 
with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will raise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another to say that even though God is with us now, there is a future hope. And some people have interpreted this story, this vision that, that, that Paul is giving to mean that, that humans are going to fly into the sky and then leave the earth and leave the earth behind, and this is, this is the, the picture that a lot of us have. But this would be a misunderstanding of what this meant to them culturally. Because when they heard Paul give this word, you know what they would have thought about? They would have thought about when a king comes back from battle victorious and is riding into the city, the whole community will run out to meet the king and usher the king back into the city. And the trumpets will blast because the king has been victorious and the citizens would all go and usher the king into the city gates. And so this image is not about humans going anywhere. This is about ushering the true king of kings back to the earth to reign over it once and for all. Paul and his friends, they thought that Jesus could come back in their lifetime. But it would be a misunderstanding for that to think that they were just sitting around waiting for that. That is not what was happening. Paul was just reminding them that their true hope is in Jesus. Their true hope is in Jesus. And we can't lose sight of that deep hope that we have. We can't hunker down waiting for something, but we also can't put our hope in the things that are right around us and see those things as actually going to save us, right? Human leaders and institutions and economics, things that give us this sense of security, those aren't bad things, but those are not the things that are going to give us the true peace that God promises and the joy that can come from Jesus. We can't lose sight of that. As I finish up, let me tell you about the, the, the experience in my life where I experienced that both-and paradox of joy and suffering really deeply in my life. Uh, some of you know that this weekend my family was together celebrating the memory of my dad who died 20 years ago this weekend. It seems crazy it's been 20 years. I was only 17 years old, and he had battled this strange lung illness for nine years, and he died at only 50 years old. And our whole family was there in the hospital with, with him at that time. We were all there for that moment when he took his last breath. And I just don't know how to explain this any other way. Even though it was 20 years ago, it feels like it was yesterday. I had never felt such deep sadness and pain as well as such deep joy at the same time. I'd never experienced that depth of the paradox, this deep loss of this person who was a hero to me at the same time knowing and having a profound joy that he was with Jesus. It was the most profound both-and experience of my life. We can't lose sight of the deepest hope that we have, which is to be with Jesus and to know that we can live in joy now because God can redeem anything and Jesus can redeem things now, even though it might seem like it's irredeemable at the moment. At times, Jesus can redeem things now and in the future will redeem all things. This is our hope. This is the only thing that can bring joy in the midst of the suffering in our life. So let me put these three things back on the screen again as we close. What's this next step for you? Lament, community, and hope. Lament, perhaps those on the margins could teach you the language that ultimately could lead to joy in your life. What would it look like to pursue that? For community, do you have some relational canning that you need to do, as, as dorky as it is, but maybe some conversations you need to have with friends about how you're going to be there for each other, even in this really long winter? And then finally, hope, is there a mindset shift that needs to take place in your life to remember that Jesus is your hope? what Jesus can do now and ultimately what Jesus will do completely. Maybe some time meditating on God's hope is important. But I think for all of us, all of us, what we need to remember is that we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would give us joy. 
So as we go into this time of worship, let me just pray that over us. Holy Spirit, we come to you and we ask you to be our joy. We know that that might come in ways that we don't understand in the midst of the suffering some of us are facing or the people around us, but we ask God that your joy would come into our life by the power of your Holy Spirit and that it would make a difference to the people around us because they would see that it comes from you, that it's not about rose-colored glasses, but about something deep that can be birthed even out of lament. We thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.